This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Hello, friends. Today we have Dr. Duncan Connors from the uh, lecture at the University of Otago School for Business. He's a historian of economics and finance with a special interest in passenger rail transport. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Duncan, you and your colleagues submitted a report to Parliament on the future of regional passenger rail transport for the South Island. Could you tell us why you considered it important to submit the report on passenger passenger rail transport? And can you work through some of the details and recommendations in the report? Of course. Good morning, Marvin. Um, We were motivated because one of the big questions um, that many of us in in the business academic community have about uh, New Zealand is the lack of passenger rail. Um, We are an OECD nation. We are a developed nation. And we, we have a certain level of infrastructure equivalent to other nations in the OECD, be they the United Kingdom, Canada, the US, France, Germany, etc., um, looking into the economic history, we obviously have two processes which um, come to the fore. One is think big, which in the 70s and 80s was an attempt to put in infrastructure, which gets criticised heavily for the amount borrowed. But we've shown that more money was made than the amount borrowed. The other one was the uh, popularly known Rogernomics slash and cut campaign. And that affected railway immensely. So if let's say I'm in a country with a similar um, population and and, and a similar um, geography, so Norway, and I'm going between two cities of roughly the similar population to Christchurch and Dunedin, let's say the line from Oslo to um, Bergen or even Oslo to Stavanger. I would be able to take a regular passenger service. Even though I went up to the far north of Norway, which I'd been to, and it's as cold as it seems, you can still get on a regular passenger train every single day of the week. So we were thinking, okay, what are the fundamental causes of this? And I must be honest with you, we couldn't find one. 
we could find a certain parsimonious attitude among politicians and certain core supporters. We could find that due to Rogenomics and the privatisation and renationalisation of Kiwi Rail, there's been an, a, a massive underinvestment in infrastructure. But we couldn't find an actual reason why it makes no sense to have trains here. So that was our starting premise. When we looked into this, we realised that the line from Christchurch, and I'm going to talk about the rest of New Zealand, of course, but the line from Christchurch to Edim is actually one of the busiest freight lines in New Zealand. It's actually quite modern track, quite modern track bed. It can take a passenger train doing, let's say, approximately 120 kilometres an hour. You would, you could slot it in. So the question is, why not? And that's our premise. So what we decided to do is to put forward to the government, and it was very fortuitous that there was actually an inquiry going on at that moment in time, a fully detailed report with a plan that was funded we, we called it a new silver fern to try and get the popular imagination and, and we did and what we said was that rather than looking at big schemes or big infrastructure massive reconstruction like the TGV um, in France we have a narrow gauge network the same as the intercity network in Japan not the Shinkansen but the regular Japanese network it's the same as the intercity network in Queensland in Western Australia in Taiwan in South Africa and they run regular services so we asked ourselves why can they do it and we can't so from there we actually looked at what they were doing and the inspiration here was Norway in terms of the funding model we put forward and Japan, in terms of technology, we could take a diesel-electric multiple unit where the engines are underneath the carriages, five cars on that tilts. Today, if I, had, if I had a magic wand, it's like I dream of genie, I could wiggle my nose and bring it over to outside Dunedin Station, plonk it on the tracks, and it will work from here to Christchurch and back again reliably, reliably in approximately three and a half hours for each leg of the journey. So our proposal was to say, go out there, talk to manufacturers, look at existing technologies, also look at ways of improving what we have in terms of the lines. So the signaling is wrong. Every block has only one train on it at a time. In single track lines in the United States, for example, you separate the trains out by 10 miles. You have a system where if a train passes a light, a light 10 miles back goes red passes one five miles along that light goes orange passes one five miles along the light further back and you can actually space out the trains safely so we said invest in the track put in better signaling put in better infrastructure and look at these trains from japan or you know from taiwan or from um switzerland even and put them in place it's a very simple proposition does finland have a similar finland again it's five million people in a highly you know a, a wide diverse geography but they run on the I, I sound like such a train spotter here they run on the the russian board gauge it's a legacy of the russian empire um but again they they run regular services north but they have an economy more like ours much than, closer much I mean, closer Forestry is their one natural product, and they have an imaginative industry in mm -hmm. technology, but their resources aren't greater than ours. 
No, no. They, they, they actually have an analogous economy, though I would point out that most economists and particularly economic historians believe that due to Rogernomics and the cut and slash, we probably have a per capita GDP 30% lower than what it should be in New Zealand. And that's the thing. So we could both probably, with some economic reform, have the money to put the trains in. But yes, Norway and, and Finland are both perfect examples of it works there. Why yeah. does it work here? Well, the reason why I mentioned Finland is because they don't have oil. Mm-hmm. They don't have anything we couldn't have. Yes. And I think that's an excuse in a way, saying we don't have oil in New Zealand. Norway does. Well, um, Switzerland does not. Austria does not. Uh, Western Australia obviously does have many big yeah. mines, but still. The, um, do you think that um, people are thinking about rail again? And um, you mentioned signaling. Something came into my mind. And this was about 10 years ago, or maybe a little more, mm-hmm. when they, I took a passenger train from Christchurch to Picton, when you could still do that. And I was asking why it was so slow. Mm. And the conductor told me, and this is just verbal, and I haven't really looked it up. Tolls owned the rail for a long time, and they sold it. But he told me that they sold off all the modern signaling equipment. Mm. Uh, stripped them of modern signaling equipment before they sold the, before they gave the railway back to the government. I can believe that. Um, again, I um, won't mention names, etc. but during privatization, it was basically running it down to the bare bones. And again, there's many case studies written on this that the company that owned the railways, um, they underinvested, they used ex- existing stock, existing um, facilities. You can see it. Even the locomotives on the South Island are from ni- late 1960s, early 70s, massively rebuilt but still. Um, and yes, that, that's very true. But it's happened in other countries. When the railways were privatized in Mexico, there was a central line which was electrified between Mexico City and Guadalajara. And the moment the private companies took it, they shut down the passenger trains and took down the electric lines and just, again, chucked in diesels. It's easier. And it's not progress, though. It's not capacity building. What's the advantage of um, rails as opposed to road transport and air transport? It's, well, there's many ways. Firstly, compared to to, um, air travel, there's two aspects of the rail which are fascinating one is it's generally quicker city to city over a certain distance for example if, if we now decided to fly to Christchurch which is really the the quickest public transport option we would have to take a taxi to Dunedin airport because there's not a shuttle bus um, we'd have to wait for 45 minutes to an hour the flight would take an hour we wait 30 40 minutes to get through the airport and then a trip into town so city center to city center rail can be a lot faster you, you're taken to the center of the, the city the other thing is that plane journey will use about between seven and nine times the fuel that a train would use so it's it's quicker um, on certain journeys longer journeys of course not but it's also it, it's much more fuel efficient in the cars um, we have some very large engines in New Zealand. We, 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 our cars live a lot longer. 
you know in, in countries like the uk i think the average scrappage age is eight years here we have cars which are you know perfectly serviceable, 20 years old and that's great that's, that's money saving but those engines are polluting so if we drove to christchurch in a 2006 3.6 litre super outback then we are using about three four times the fuel per passenger than a train would if a train let's say had 80 passengers for a car five cars 400 passengers and that's the thing it's much more fuel efficient and it gets you there quicker the issue is you need public transport either end so christchurch could do a good job of making that tram network not just for tourists but expanding it out that would make a difference um commuter rail in dunedin so they're the two big advantages over long distance rail it's when the point-to-point journey isn't as quick by rail that's when you have to consider aircraft so across so let's say on in the east coast of the us dc to boston even the shuttle aircraft the train for a sailor is now quicker in france there's a law you cannot use an aircraft for any journey which is less than three hours use the the, the train but if i'm traveling let's say from chicago to los angeles the plane is quicker and it's more convenient and that's a fact of life you know large diverse countries so of course part of the problem with america they they never really developed passenger rail and they haven't kept it no no they haven't it's a shame because they had it in the 40s and 50s you'll find that in on the west coast there was there was quite established passenger rail systems and the decline and i find it ironic they they say that we don't want to spend public money on passenger rail but the airports are not in america normally publicly owned publicly subsidized it's fascinating well they have an interesting history with cars and buses in america because in the 40s late 40s and the 50s the oil companies and other um and it's mostly the oil company. They actually bought out uh, public transport. Mm-hmm. Uh, they bought out trams um, and uh, light rail, and they just scrapped them. Mm. This happened in Los Angeles. It was a good example. And Very you, good you know example. what happened there. So that's part of the story. It's, it's not economizing maybe it's economic greed it could be monopolizing um i think monopolizing is part of the aspect oil companies car companies buying the pacific red car in los angeles but we also find it's also um the attitude of politicians when it comes to spending money i was astounded to discover upon returning to wellington that the um, electric buses the trolley buses have gone because it's too expensive to maintain the system so electric buses powered by ample renewable electricity in New Zealand have gone and been replaced by diesel ones. I, I find that crazy. Well, the city council and the regional council has actually said that we should really, the city council should own them instead mm. of private companies. I mean, you've got a, a, a situation when you have private partnership that you're, you're contracting for the job and you, somebody, some other bus company is contracting for the job. If you want it, you go for the lowest, um, you know, you offer to do it cheaper than anybody else. Well, by the time you've got that, you don't have any money to spend on drivers. You don't have any money to spend on buses up people are having the most modern. Exactly. It's all bare bones. Exactly. I mean, it's a shame because the third way model would regenerate the trains in New Zealand, but countries that have done it successfully have proper regulation. And regulations is a dirty word to politicians of a certain ilk. 
but it's what makes Germany, Japan, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, the Scandinavian countries very successful economic entities. So do you actually think it's positive for countries to subsidize rail use taxpayer money? Very much so, because the benefit, it's a benefit to the economy. Every journey by plane to Christchurch from Dunedin or from Wellington to Auckland has not just an environmental cost, there are other costs involved to maintain the airport, there's costs in, in people's time. And it is subsidised to an extent. There's, you know, airlines can get tax-free fuel, for example. That's a subsidy. Airports are owned by the government, and if you need to build another runway, etc., that's a subsidy. As I, we showed in our report, um, myself, Andrew Purchase, and Sarah Carr, if you subsidise a service that brings people into a city that takes people off the roads that generates footfall and movement and mobility, the economic activity created is far more than the subsidy. It's joined up thinking, which they use in continental countries a heck of a lot. I believe we swallowed the Thatcher pill a bit too much in Anglo-American, Anglosphere, Commonwealth countries. Um, well, I think the English-speaking language makes us politically illiterate. Um, I, 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 could, I almost certainly agree. <laughs> so, um, would you, for instance, encourage um, rail, some kind of rail transport between Moscow and Central Dunedin, and maybe between Moscow and Port Chalmers? Almost certainly. Um, Councillor Jim O'Malley and, and I spent much time talking about this. There are some changes that would have to be put in place. Um, a passing loop here, double track in there, but, but the, the track bed is there and it's strong. It can take a train. You'd have to have um, signalling devolved to, to regional signalling so you can tr control the trains locally at the moment. It's preposterous, but the trains in Dunedin are controlled from a, a room in Wellington. Um, you would want to, I know, you would want to start in Mosgill, which is our overspill town, it's a, a relatively new community, and go through to Port Chalmers. But as you go along that line, you notice there's some post-industrial spaces where you can build new communities. People would like to move to Dunedin. It's remarkable. The, the individuals I meet from the rest of New Zealand who look at our city, and despite our um, yeah, a reputation of a cold climate, I believe the Scottish comedian uh, Billy Conley said I pity the poor Scotsman who left the country in the 1890s for better for a better climate who ended up in Dunedin well that's not really true I can tell you I, I've lived in London and it's far drier and warmer here you could use that commuter rail to provide for the current issues we're having with traffic from Moscow mm -hmm. but also develop new communities because our city will grow and it should grow in a planned way using transport at the centre well I agree with the plan part and I also agree with providing more housing for people, but also we have to be careful that we keep our horticultural land. Of course, very I much mean, so. We may depend on that at some point. Of course. And I think and we should be able to depend on it. Yes. Brownfield land, we have plenty of it in the city. Um, and I am saddened when I go out Moscow Way and I see farmland being turned into housing. That's, that's sadness. We, 
and it's in the United Kingdom um, when I went um, there in November it's one thing you notice they loosened the planning laws and my first degree is actually in, in town planning they loosened the planning laws about 10 years ago and you're seeing these houses crop up everywhere and they argue oh it's only you know 10% of the land is urbanised it's only changing it to 12% but it makes the place ugly and I'd hate to see New Zealand um, go that way but yes that train line could build economic activity it could future proof our city as it grows So you don't think our narrow gauge railways are really a problem? Not at all. I That's one of the excuses people use. They uh, always say that. That comes up. Always. And it's very, it's it's so many excuses and and it, and it worries me um as a nation do we in New Zealand have this recourse to make an excuse that stops us. If narrow gauge railways are so bad, well Outside the bullet train, all intercity services in Japan are narrow gauge, on exactly the same gauge we have here. And I used to travel. I used to go to Japan a lot. And I used to love to take the train up to Matsumoto, if I was going to Nagoya, for example, and then down. So it's north from Tokyo, into the mountains and down. Oh, yeah. Yes, the bullet train may only take me an hour. That took me four hours. But then when you went along, you saw prosperous communities and these trains were every hour and there were commuter trains up to 100 kilometers from from tokyo it was working when i went to hokkaido you know you can see the same these these diesel passenger trains every hour moving 400 people so it's not an impediment And, and again in western australia there is a standard gauge line that obviously goes across the nation but you find that the local commuter rail and I've, I've spoken to the actual passenger transport the people who run the trains in western australia it's on even some of the intercity services it's on our gauge queensland the the tilting train that goes from brisbane up to cairns again narrow gauge so it's not an impediment it's it's excuse making part of it's a parsimonious excuse making how much would that cost part of it is is look is it's bringing down New Zealand, and we should be very proud of ourselves as a nation. This is the nation of Rutherford and Hillary, and we, we get in these attitudes. They should be ashamed of themselves. Well, I'm going to place a music, Otto Guthrie, and the city of New Orleans. Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central Monday morning rail Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors Twenty-five sacks of mail All along the southbound Odyssey The train pulls out at Kankakee And rolls along past houses, farms and fields Trains that have no name And freight yards full of old black men And the graveyards of the rusted automobiles Good morning America, how are you? Said don't you know me, I'm your native son I'm the train they call the city of I'll be gone by 
of God Penny a point ain't no one keeping score As the paper bag that holds the bottle The sons of Pullman porters and the sons of engineers write their father's magic carpets made of steel. Mothers with their babes asleep rocking to the gentle beat and the rhythm of the rails is all they feel. Good I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done Nighttime on the city of New Orleans Changing cars in Memphis, Tennessee Halfway home and we'll be there by morning Mississippi darkness rolling down to the sea But all the towns and people seem To fade into a bad dream And the steel rail still ain't heard the news The conductor sings his songs again The passengers will please refrain This train got to disappear in Be gone 500 miles when the day is done That was the city of New Orleans a memorial to a railway line between New Orleans and Chicago that was a passenger line that was closed down some time ago we're talking with uh, Dr. Duncan Conley about uh, rail passenger transport and the uh, efficiencies of it and also the sustainability of it. You can uh, podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to uh, podcast and then going to community or chaos. Well, Duncan, uh, what does advocating economic, economic asperity and an unwillingness to pay taxes, particularly from the business classes, say about our economic maturity and sophistication? Can you go into some detail about that? I, I could. I mean, it is it is it does fascinate me. On the one hand, we have an amazing business community. Um, I'm involved with 
Business South. Um, I go regularly to their meetings and I, and I meet very intelligent, able, entrepreneurial individuals who would agree with a lot of what we are saying here about the train, about rail services, about how our infrastructure is put together. Um, ultimately, I think particularly in, in Dunedin, we need to remember the economic contribution we make to New Zealand. South Island is not just 25% of GDP. It's the majority of the exports. We're, bringing, we're selling the agricultural produce, the raw materials, the wine, thankfully, which the world buys. And that money comes in, and it's what underpins the economy. You talk about Keynes' general model. You have an injection, and we're the injection that goes into the economy that gets circulated. I think the, the issue is the political landscape. Auckland may be bigger than Dunedin. It may be, you know, half the population lives above um, Taupiri, which is, you know, 1,325 kilometres from here, which is only 90 kilometres south of Auckland. And our business culture is focused there, but we are the, we are the hub that creates the economy going down here. And I think... The problem is we're spending money in Auckland in infrastructure and not developing the economy in the south, be it Southland, Otago, on the west coast, Canterbury. And I think we need to change our model. We need to understand that business and government have to work together. We have to be government acts as the glue that holds us together and make sure there's a fair, there's a fair landscape. But also, sometimes it shouldn't be there just for the bad times. For example, our electric, our electric generation in New Zealand could do with some guidance, maybe to put a few additional geothermal plants in, to modernise the hydro plants, to put in um, offshore wind. If you leave that to the market, that will never happen. But if you have a guidance attitude, and business would appreciate that. The problem is... Half the voters are above a certain line, so let's just focus above, focus above that line. The other half, and we have a member of council here who typifies this, and we all know who he is, has a how much will that cost mentality. Oh, it's not worth it. We can't do it. We're the periphery. We're not. We, we were a country that once had a GDP per capita about 90% that of the U.S., before Britain joined the EEC and we, we were economically dislocated, it may be we're still suffering psychologically from that dislocation of the United Kingdom from New Zealand's economy down here. So I think that, um, you know, it, it seems like a two dirty words in New Zealand, think big. But the business community is thinking big and it needs government and the institutions to follow along and provide that infrastructure and that support to enable our companies to thrive. Otherwise, they're spending, their truckers are losing money because of damage to their trucks. People are spending too much money on logistics. The electricity network you know, for a large plant might not be able to provide the supply. And that's holding us back, I believe. Okay. We've been talking about what we hope for. What if it comes to pass that what we hope for doesn't happen, that climate change gets worse, or that in some ways we, this, our civilization is more fragile than, than mm. I ever believed it was? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do we need a plan B in case things don't go as we'd hoped? 
Well, for instance, do we need to actually make it possible to be almost totally self-sufficient in food and other things that we that we need to use to survive? Not that that we expect that to happen, but should we have that possibility in mind? Um, I, I certainly agree with you, and, and through my career, I've been involved with some think tanks that do work along these lines and, lines, and in part of my teaching, I do, do actually teach what if the worst could possibly happen. And you're quite correct, to, to re- reach a mature time of your life, Marvin, that you have, and to see the same mistakes being repeated, that's not acceptable. Um, we should move forward um, in a spirit of progress. You know, when I was a child, my mum used to take me to Epcot Center in, in um, Disney World in Florida, and you had um, the carousel of progress where um, this this dark ride, you'd go round in a circle, and, and, and humanity's condition would, would get better. You had another ride called Horizons, where it's the life of a typical family in the 21st century. And what saddens me is that ride was closed in 1999 I had discussion with the science fiction writer David Brin about this actually um, and since then we seem to not believe in progress or a brighter future we, we've become almost you know, like the movie Blade Runner you know we, we've we've lost that focus so now I think we, sh- we should we should look at ourselves and think well hang on we have a war in Europe that is highly destructive there are nuclear reactors there i written work on this um, that could get hit any moment that could cause an, ec- uh, an environmental disaster Vladimir Putin is not well and that's a, possibly the biggest euphemism in the world and he has access to 2,000 nuclear missiles now I'm quite sure the United States etc have mitigation processes but it could be the potential that we could we could face a nuclear holocaust which, you know, as a child who grew up with the sirens um, being tested and they're on every fire station in the United Kingdom, um, a father in the, the Royal Air Force, um, you know, that was a reality for us. It may be the case that um, <laughs> New Zealand is some kind of arc. We're far enough away, which is good, but also in terms of climate change, we may not be as hit in the same way as other nations because of our proximity to water, proximity to cooler water, but we, 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 we can, well, South Island feeds 40 million people globally. We can sure as heck feed 5 million. And there might be a, a, a plan B. And, it, and it, it does sadden me. But yes, ultimately, at some point, we have to make that decision about the survival of the human race. And part of that would be growing food locally. We have to have local supplies, local mm-hmm. networks. I'm quite sure someone in government would hope someone in government in Wellington does have these ideas because I hope they don't become a reality but when you have nuclear weapons in India and China and Pakistan and people are nationalistic we have politicians like Vladimir Putin, Modi um, Xi etc who have access it could be a problem and when these countries are not cutting their CO2 levels because they're saying well and quite rightly we were the colonised quite rightly we are the poor countries quite rightly so we're going to keep on going. That's not a good way to do things. We should support them to produce less CO2 to prevent a climate catastrophe happening. But I, I read this morning in a report that a glacier in Greenland is melting far faster than we thought. And it's one of those glaciers which is on land. That means if it does melt and go into the sea, whereas ice that's already floating doesn't increase, like ice in a martini, it won't increase the level of the water. 
ice on land does and the size of this glacier is such so yes we have to start thinking of plan b and plan b would be stop flying stop using their cars go to rail source locally cut back um our consumption um unfortunately i'm not sure how we could possibly get the message across one of the my i have a friend who's very interested in this kind of he actually built a house for fifty thousand dollars off the off the grid Mm-hmm. You know, he fortunately he had the uh, the ability to build the house himself, but he suggests that we should use the um, the diesel engines are actually quite useful because they can use biofuel, mm, and they're also they tend to they're actually quite um, resilient. They last a long mm. time. He suggests that we. We really can't afford to electrify the whole of New Zealand at this point. That we shouldn't. That we should keep the diesel engines and use electric, electric especially for um, commuter traffic mm. in cities that have uh, relatively short distances. It's yes, it's a suggestion, but it always comes down to supply and demand. Ultimately. If you use agricultural waste to make biofuel, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm quite sure for a country like New Zealand, we can use, make, create a significant amount of biodiesel from our waste. It's when you start putting agricultural land over to fuel, it affects the price of um, food. But the other thing is, we actually have, we actually have a capacity, huge capacity for electricity here. And again, to go back to being a railway nerd, it's all how you electrify. If you use direct current, you have to um, put in much more infrastructure and you, you basically turn it from the grid, which is alternating current, into direct current, which is what they use um, in, the, in the southern part of North Island and in, in some parts of Japan, etc. But if you use direct current, it comes straight off the grid. Effectively, in countries that use direct current to electrify trains, those lines are actually part of the grid. They're actually transporting electricity around the country, and the train just taps in, takes its amount, and taps out again when when it's finished. And I think it's a a sadness. Um, I felt, going back to comments about how we need to think big in New Zealand, is Norway very similar landscape? similar size population had 36 gigawatts of hydropower we have six in new zealand now hydropower does destroy farming land it does affect fish populations and the environment so maybe it's not a solution anymore though you can have one where you take it out the river to the side where you keep the river flowing for fish but we also have some very areas where we could put in wind power we could put in 36 gigawatts of wind power and that's the problem. So Norway, yes, it's electric, not because of every going back to it has oil, it's because it has electricity. And when the oil's gone, that electricity will power aluminium okay. smelters, nickel smelters, and okay. exports. So that's what I mean by that. If we have trouble trading, will we be able to keep this infrastructure up pretty well? I think we could. I think we have all the elements to construct what we need in New Zealand. We're a country that's blessed with um, resources. Um, you know, again, maybe things like iron ore, you'd have to recycle aluminium. We have the aluminium smelter at Tiwa Point, which I'll be doing some research on soon. Um, 
but mostly you would have an ability to sustain five million people um, in a form of, I hate to use a word because the association with certain regimes, autarky. Um, it's there. We, we have that capacity. And in some ways, they say, you know, free trade is good. You specialize, you trade what you're good at. Yes. But I think if we take it to the modern world and the non um, apocalyptic situation, New Zealand actually, because it has to transport goods so far, We'd be better off in some areas actually doing it itself. But unfortunately, we've closed down a lot of capacity, such as oil refining, etc. We closed down capacity, which actually saved us money in the end of the day. Are we still really tied to neoliberal economics? And the way we plan things and the way we decide not to do things, that we can't afford to do things. I've often thought that if you build infrastructure that's useful, that will last a considerable period of time, that it might be worth going into debt mm. to build, not just rail, but I'm also thinking of hospitals mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, any kind of economic, I mean, any kind of system we actually need and will use in the long run. Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, more than any country in the world, we're still tied to that neoliberal um, fantasy. Now, I want to point out here, business is good. Private enterprise is good, but it's where you place it within the economy. So in my field, economic history, we have this varieties of capitalism literature. It says multitude of systems of capitalism. Germany has a dirigist system where in terms of infrastructure, the government provides. Well, all I've got to say is Volkswagen ultimately they've got successful exporting companies there in other countries they say no no the, the the market will provide now the market can make some people very rich we see their mansions out by wanica um, but it also it can ignore parts of society and over the over the years infrastructure suffers what you want is a mixed system and i think that we need to get it over ourselves in terms of rogenomics. You know, we need to get over ourselves and say, what does New Zealand need? It needs good roads, it needs good rail, it needs clean water, clean air. The hospital is an example of this, um, where we have to spend. Now, um, the campaign is we pay, they save. And I wrote an article before that in the Otago Daily Times, where I said, you know, this is the reality, it's our money. But if this hospital was in Auckland, they wouldn't even flinch. The problem here is the electoral system and the problem here is the political system. New Zealand may only have 5 million people, but my God, it's big. It's a big country. We're 1,500 kilometres from Auckland. We're 800 kilometres from the capital city. We're on a, a separate island, which is bigger than England, for example, actually England and Wales. We've 1 million people. Now, Switzerland is geographically smaller, but it's highly federalized. Austria is geographically smaller and highly federalized. A country like ours can't have a political system that favors one big city in the north when other cities are being told, we're gonna cut your hospital. We can't afford to do it, but they don't say to the majority of voters, we'll, we'll cut your hospital. And I think that's the issue here. We have to accept it. Yes, you borrow money. But, I mean, I, I come across these, these people, and the first thing I say to them, do you own a home? 
Yes. Do you have a mortgage? Yes. So I don't go into the estate agents and say, hello, can I have a house, please? I've got $7 in my pocket. I go to the bank. I borrow money. And my house is, I buy it. Over the years, I have it improved. It becomes better. It's the same with the roads. It's the same with the railways. It's the same with ports. We have to buy money. Now, we can borrow money responsibly. Excuse me. And that's the problem. There are many people who are part of the political discourse in New Zealand who believe any borrowing is reckless. And that's not true. Speak to Japan. Speak to Germany. Speak to France. Speak to Denmark. Speak to Sweden. They all borrow money to finance infrastructure. And those roads and those trains in France, SNCF, the French National Railway Company, it's much more like a company owned by the state as opposed to a state ministry borrowed money to build the TGV and look how successful it has been. Should we also consider having a coastal um, shipping line? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. It's, again... That's another form of insurance, isn't it? It is. It's a form of... It's future-proofing, but also Australia has coastal shipping. In the US, um, the Maritime um, Act says that, you know, Merchant ships being used in the US have to be made in the US and tr- certain transport has to use the intercoastal um, shipping routes, and some of them which are canals, some of which aren't. Ultimately, a country like this, two islands, where there's a lot of commerce, where we're sending food north and energy and, you know, raw, um, manufactured items and goods are coming in. Intercoastal trans- transport can make a big difference. And... Port Chalmers is an example of this. Port Chalmers is a far better port to have a container port than Littleton. But if you actually had intercoastal shipping, you could transfer from some of the huge um, container ships from there onto intercoastal ships and all the way up to Auckland. At the moment, it's being restricted because we don't have that. And again, it's very fuel efficient. These are diesel. Though in Norway, they've developed electric ones which you charge at the quayside. These are diesel vessels, but they use a heck of a lot less fuel than those trucks on the road. The trucks, and I love the trucks, they're amazing in a nerdy kind of sense, but they're a problem in New Zealand. They're a problem. They're they're holding us back when you have to use trucks which can can carry at max two containers, when you can have a train that can carry 100 or a boat that can carry 1,000. I think one thing people haven't realised, the... the, um the impact that containers could really have because it used to be you had to load a truck by hand mm-hmm. and it took you, you know, um, well, a good amount of hours to to shift gear from a, a railway wagon to a truck and vice versa. But with a container, you can move the whole mm. container from the train to the truck and vice versa. Yes. That means you don't have to have trucks going to Port Chalmers. You don't have to... Um, Beat up your highways. Exactly. And something else um, Jim and O'Malley um, has proposed and we've discussed is the idea of an inland port here. So um, the trucks do the last 50 to 100 kilometres and they, they drive alongside a train and it's very quickly on the train and off it goes. And I think that's how we have to think. We, it's not just about global warming. It's also about energy. Oil, we can't use it. It is scarce coal we have plenty of it but we can't use it 
energy will become scarce and you want the most energy efficient system and containerization is that containerization has i'm having one delivered tomorrow actually containerization has changed the world and it's a great system even the boeing 747 that came about because the designer put two containers standard size 40 foot containers end on end in the boeing car park a piece of chalk and said that will be the size of the plane because they thought passenger transport will go supersonic it never did so they designed these planes to carry freight thinking they'll carry passengers at first then we're going to be on our concords so they can carry freight and that's why we have these large wide-bodied aircraft so containerization yeah it's it's one of those great innovations nobody knows or cares about what are your hopes for new zealand i think new zealand can lead the world as a prosperous progressive nation regardless of which political party you support regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum we're very tolerant people we're very stoic people the country has a bubbling energy and it's shown in those characters who come from these shores who've left the country or people like myself who've come to live in the country who have made different Nobel Prize winners, Splitting the Atom, The First Ascent of Everest, my heroes, Bert Monroe and John Britton. Um, you, you can see that if we take that, the number eight gauge mentality and turn it into an actual philosophy of getting things done whilst being tolerant, I think we could lead the world. We're going to have to put aside the idea which entered the popular gestalt after Britain joined the European union that we can't do it ourselves that the, the golden age is behind us and maybe it's an identity issue ultimately it was only in the 60s a law was passed removing british citizen from the front of new zealand passports those passports were 20 years duration back then that means someone in the 80s would have a british citizen on a new zealand passport it's only 1977 we were no longer british subjects our court of appeal was only opened our final court of supreme court on the 1st of january 2005 we now need we now have control of our affairs we have our identity we don't need a new flag we we we, we don't need to tell people we're new zealanders we just be new zealanders and we we take that energy and we we take the positives and if we we start saying we can do it and stop being so, mm, I'm not sure how much that costs. Mm, I'm not sure we can do that and realize that, yes, we can and we can do it very well. Thank you. Um, we could be a high GDP per capita nation with a voice in the global stage that people listen to. And when they see the flag, they notice that the, there's more stars than the Australian one. They're white and there's four stars than the New Zealand one and they're red. We have to be comfortable in our identity to move forward and believe we can do things. And I, I've got, knowing New Zealanders as I do now, I've got every confidence that we will. Okay, thanks a lot for uh, coming and talking with us, and um, thanks for your encouragement. You're welcome. By the way, we have been talking with uh, Duncan, o Duncan Connors from the um, Otago University Business School, and you can podcast this. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.